You're listening to ReachMD XM160, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to ADHD Across the Lifespan, produced in cooperation with APSART, the American Professional Society of ADHD and Related Disorders, and sponsored by Concerta, a product of McNeil Pediatrics, Division of Ortho McNeil Janssen Pharmaceuticals, Incorporated. Your host is Clinical Assistant Professor and Director of the Wellness Team for NYU Graduate Medical Education, Dr. Vatsal Thacker. How is genetic research of ADHD advancing, and will new genetic discoveries ultimately lead to better treatments for this disorder? Joining us to discuss genetic traits of ADHD is Dr. Randy Blakely, the Alan D. Bass Professor of Pharmacology and Psychiatry at Vanderbilt University and Director of the Vanderbilt Center for Molecular Neuroscience in Nashville, Tennessee. Welcome, Dr. Blakely. So uh, considering the research that you're known for, could you help our audience by explaining maybe what the role of dopamine is in ADHD? Dopamine is a brain chemical, what we call a neurotransmitter, and it's a signal that's passed from one neuron to another. And what's most important about thinking about dopamine are the circuits in the brain that use dopamine to communicate. Those circuits are well known to neuroscientists and to pharmacologists and clinicians as being important for movement. So when we lose dopamine, we have a disorder called Parkinson's disease. But the normal signaling of dopamine is much more intricate, and it also involves circuits that control uh, attention and executive function, control our ability to hold thoughts in mind and information in mind while we move through our tasks, this process called working memory. And all of these together form our cognitive abilities, and dopamine is a very powerful modulator of those circuits. And as a result, because of these two major roles that dopamine plays, one in movement and control of activity, and in these attentional circuits in the cortex, we have a connection to a disorder attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, ADHD, that is linked up through dopamine. Right. So the dopamine ties in the physical aspects of the syndrome and the cognitive ones. How would you compare the role of dopamine versus norepinephrine in this condition? Is it purely dopamine or is it a mix? It is probably a mix, and I certainly don't want to oversimplify. Norepinephrine is very important neurotransmitter in the cortex as well, and it participates as well in attentional circuits. It's not as important in the control of impulsivity and hyperactivity and motor function in general. In fact, the neurons that project into the cortex pretty much run around or move past the areas that control motor function. So they're really much more involved in the attention component than is dopamine, which is involved in both. So tell us a little bit about the work you're doing and the genetic studies that you've done recently. All right. Let me set a context for you that is sort of more at a national or even international level, which has to do with how scientists are going about identifying genes that cause risk for mental illness in general, and we can think about ADHD as well. And that involves looking for common genetic markers that might give us, say, a diagnostic test or a clue about a particular region of a chromosome that is selectively transmitted to an individual who is at risk then for one or more neuropsychiatric disorder, ADHD, for example. That's one approach. 
and it is a very powerful approach, but it has some limitations, and those limitations have to do simply with the complexity of the brain and the complexity of genes that control how the brain works. So we've taken another approach, and that approach involves focusing down on specific molecules that we understand from the neuroscience world are important for how the basic processes that underlie behavior and then disease are working. And uh, that has taken us into the dopamine system, and it's taken us to a key protein in the dopamine system called the dopamine transporter. And once we arrive there, and, and maybe we can talk a little bit more about why there, but once we arrive there, then the hunt is for not for a common genetic marker that a lot of people share. It's actually for a few rare individuals who will have a change in their DNA that is very obvious to us in the laboratory. It'll have an obvious functional effect, a defect as it were, and from that we learn a lot about how the larger disorder may be working. And it's a different approach. We're going after rare mutations. These rare mutations, therefore, are not going to turn up in the clinic. You have to actually hunt for them, but you don't find them in unaffected individuals. And they're great clues. They're sort of like a foot in the door to a mechanism that can be more broadly relevant. Right. So one of the questions may be, why would you study such a rare occurrence? But you're saying it, it might illustrate a mechanism for you. That's right. And this is a strategy that many other scientists have pursued with great success in disorders like Parkinson's disease and Alzheimer's disease, where there are uncommon heritable forms of these disorders, some of which occur much earlier than the sporadic cases of, of those disorders. But when we look at those heritable forms, we gain a glimpse of a mechanism that is probably playing out in all the other cases of those diseases. So even in a case like Parkinson's disease, when I was in graduate school, we learned that Parkinson's disease was probably not a genetic disorder. But today we know because of the study of rare families that have a high heritability for Parkinson's disease, that in fact there are specific genes that cause risk for Parkinson's disease. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to ADHD Across the Lifespan from Reach MD Radio on XM160, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Vatsal Thacker, and joining us to discuss genetic traits of ADHD is Dr. Randy Blakely, the Alan D. Bass Professor of Pharmacology and Psychiatry at Vanderbilt University and Director of the Vanderbilt Center for Molecular Neuroscience in Nashville, Tennessee. Dr. Blakely, getting back to what you were saying earlier what kind of genetic variation or mutation have you found that is relevant to the pathophysiology of ADHD? Well, we have focused in on a key brain protein called the dopamine transporter. Now, the dopamine transporter is one of the proteins that is present on a dopamine-secreting neuron that recovers dopamine once it is released into the synapse. This is a vital protein, and when it's inactivated by drugs like cocaine, for example, we have the well-known increase in euphoria and the addictive potential of this drug. In the case of our study, what we're looking at is 
how the dopamine transporter gene varies in association with ADHD. And one of the reasons we focused on it is that all three FDA-approved medications for the treatment of ADHD target the removal of dopamine by either the dopamine transporter or its brother, the norepinephrine transporter. And that's a side story And on the norepinephrine side. We talked about it a few minutes ago. And But the dopamine transporter is central to our thinking about how dopamine is controlled in synapses. And it's a target for both methylphenidate and also for amphetamine-type drugs that are used to treat ADHD. So that gave us a clue that there might be something actually in the dopamine transporter itself in a few individuals that we would be able to then identify at a genetic level. And that's where we have made our discovery here. It is in two brothers, two young boys, who have either a hyperactive, impulsive, predominant ADHD or what is called a combined form where they have both the hyperactivity as well as attention deficit. And these two boys, we found a mutation in their dopamine transporter, and it causes a very unusual property of this protein. Yeah, so help walk me through this. You're saying that the genetic mutation in these two boys does what exactly? Right. So normally the dopamine transporter in the in the nerve terminal works to take up dopamine, like a sort of like a miniature vacuum cleaner. A little nano vacuum cleaner is really at the scale we're talking about. But it, it keeps the synaptic area essentially cleared of dopamine so that the next time a nerve impulse comes in, dopamine can be released and you can interpret that signal. So it reduces the background noise, just like your vacuum cleaner reduces the background clutter in your house. But instead of doing that normal job, this mutation causes the dopamine transporter to run backwards. It actually causes the neuron to spit out dopamine and clutter up the synapse. This was a very exciting finding when we found it. Frankly, it was at the end of nearly two years of work trying to find other properties of this protein that were different. And in every other way, it is normal. It gets to the synapse at the right levels. It transports in sometimes quite normally. And it actually interacts with most drugs quite normally. But one of the things it doesn't interact with appropriately, as it turns out, is amphetamine. And there was a clue because we knew that amphetamine, when it's normally applied to a dopamine transporter, it actually causes that transporter to run backwards sometimes. And we take advantage of that property clinically to elevate extracellular dopamine. And of course, if, if we give too much to a normal individual, we can trigger an addiction. But this mutation is causing this protein to run in that backwards direction, even without amphetamine. How does a mutated receptor cause the pathologic state if it's putting more dopamine in the synapse? This is a transporter. Let me just clarify. It's a transporter protein, which are they, they're quite different from receptor proteins. This transporter protein, when it runs backwards, is not doing its normal job of cleaning up the synapse. It is cluttering up the synapse with excess dopamine. Normally, dopamine is released by another mechanism, a mechanism we call vesicular release, where small vesicles that contain dopamine 
fuse with the membrane and deposit dopamine in little packets in the synapse. Then this transporter goes to work and gets rid of it so that it doesn't hang around very long. In this case, that vesicular process of release is going on, but it's having to do that in this cluttered up background of having the transporter spitting out dopamine in parallel. And that's what we think is causing a problem with the circuits that use dopamine. It's a noisy signal now, and what you do, and in fact, one of the exciting things was that uh, I told you that amphetamine will do this on its own to a normal dopamine transporter, and we think even to a normal individual, there is a loss of attentional capacity when an individual takes too much of these kinds of drugs. But when we found that this was what was happening with the dopamine transporter, that it was spitting out dopamine and sort of acting like it was on amphetamine all the time, we thought we should go back and look at the clinical record of these two boys and ask what were they taking. And it turns out, you guessed it, they're taking amphetamine. Amphetamine did not act in the normal way on this mutation. What it did, instead of causing the transporter to leak, which is the normal way it does on the normal transporter, it actually caused a blockade of the leak caused by the mutation. So it transformed the action of amphetamine into something that could be clinically beneficial. Fascinating research, Dr. Blakely. I'd like to thank my guest from Vanderbilt University, Dr. Randy Blakely. Dr. Blakely, thank you very much for being our guest this week on ADHD Across the Lifespan. Thank you very much. You've been listening to ADHD Across the Lifespan on ReachMD XM160, the channel for medical professionals. ADHD Across the Lifespan is produced in cooperation with APSART, the American Professional Society of ADHD and Related Disorders, and sponsored by Concerta, a product of McNeil Pediatrics, division of Ortho McNeil Janssen Pharmaceuticals Incorporated. For more information about this or any other show, please visit ReachMD.com, now featuring on-demand podcasts. It's 9 a.m., and John's ADHD is already causing problems at home. Work doesn't go much better. Once Daily Concerta, methylphenidate hydrochloride is a step in the right direction for patients like John who need ADHD symptom improvement with a proven tolerability profile. Concerta offers smooth delivery of medication throughout the day, and its compromise-resistant formulation may help discourage abuse. Abuse of methylphenidate may lead to dependence. Concerta is a Schedule II controlled substance. Concerta is already the number one ADHD medication prescribed for children and adolescents. Discover the benefits it can bring to adult patients with ADHD. Visit www.concerta360.com to find out more today and get online tools for diagnosing ADHD in adults. Concerta is indicated for the treatment of Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder, ADHD. Important safety information. Concerta should not be taken by patients with allergies to methylphenidate or other ingredients in Concerta, significant anxiety, tension, or agitation, glaucoma, Tourette's syndrome, tics, or family history of Tourette's syndrome, current or recent use of monomain oxidase inhibitors, MAOIs. Children under six years of age should not take Concerta. Abuse of methylphenidate may lead to dependence. 
Concerta should not be used in patients with known structural cardiac abnormalities, cardiomyopathy, serious heart rhythm abnormalities, coronary artery disease, other serious cardiac problems, or patients with pre-existing severe gastrointestinal narrowing. Use with caution in patients with hypertension and other cardiovascular conditions, psychosis, bipolar disorder, and history of seizures, EEG abnormalities. Stimulants may cause new psychotic or manic symptoms. Discontinuation of treatment may be appropriate. Aggressive behavior or hostility should be monitored in patients beginning ADHD treatment. Methylphenidate may produce difficulties with visual accommodation and blurring of vision. Hematologic monitoring is advised during prolonged therapy. Growth should be monitored during treatment with stimulants, and patients who are not growing or gaining height or weight as expected may need to have their treatment interrupted. The most common adverse reaction, greater than 5%, reported in children and adolescents was abdominal pain upper. The most common adverse reactions, greater than 10%, reported in adults were dry mouth, nausea, decreased appetite, headache, and insomnia. Concerta. Start here. Get there.